0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This week on Into the Archives with the Boone podcast, uh, it's kind of a sad one. Uh, Recently, we lost one of my uh, colleagues, too young. He was a great guy is a great competitor i played against this guy for a long time starting in the minor leagues a two-time world series champion but but a better guy rest in peace and and hope you enjoy this this podcast that that timmy sat down with me about a year ago welcome to the program tim wakefield
1: sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic join us as we go into the archives we going back and put our ear to the history books with this one this is into the archives Here's your host, Brett Boone.
0: Reading about Tim Wakefield, and we'll get to it a little bit later. We played against each other starting in in A ball. I mean, you were a oh, yeah you had made, you had made the conversion at that time. You were throwing that. It was my first year. Yeah. Were As you a, a kid, the w- that year. Yeah, I came in. That was my draft year, '90. Yeah. And I think you were with Salem because you know before before you get to pro ball. it, it It would be a rare instance if you face an actual knuckleballer in high school, college, wherever. All right. Question to you. As a hitter, you ever face a knuckleballer?
1: I did. In the big leagues, I faced Tom Candiotti. He and I matched up against against each other in L.A. in 1992. Yeah. How was it?
0: I, 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 I think, I I think you're, I think you're with the rest of us. You know, I always just think, (laughs) gosh, man, come on, I'm feeling good. I got to face wake or in the beginning, I got to face Charlie Huff and my swings good right now. And I know it's just a lot of it is luck. Doesn't matter how good of a swing I put on it. If you've got that one dancing that particular day and I'm off at all, I'm done. And especially yeah. if you're throwing strikes with it, you're getting ahead in the count. That's what we used to, as hitters, we're just like, all right, if he get behind the count and, and he doesn't have that good control today, he's got to throw something else. And we yeah, always try to my do can, too. Yeah, Candy Gotti, he, he was different than you, though,
1: because he would throw a lot more curveballs. He threw a lot of curveballs, and they were really good, too, by the way. He couldn't pick up the spin on it. it was such.
0: I, I, I got to the point with candy I, I would not even swing at a knuckleball because I know he's going to throw me a curveball and, and I felt like I had a better chance off the off the curveball and I knew I was going to get one and he used to go right. to that bit, little lollipop 2o instead of you you know and, and for you guys it's different we'll talk about it later the cat and mouse on how we think and you know I'm gonna you know in a certain situation I'm going to give you that fastball I'm just going to give right. it to you it's just is this the time where the hitter's going to give it to me? And when you throw it and and you miss and you throw it for a ball, you're going come on. I just wasted. Oh yeah. I'm really mad
1: at myself at that point too.
0: Yeah. Um, You're born in Melbourne, Florida. Tim Wakefield Uh was a kid. What were you like as a little kid?
1: I did everything. I surfed. I played basketball. I played football. I loved to fish. My grandpa used to take me fishing all the time. I was, I was into everything. Tennis. I played tennis. Uh, but baseball was my passion. I mean, that's, that's something I did. You know, I would remember my, I don't remember it, but my parents used to say I used to take a wiffle ball bat and hit a ball over the, over the the roof and then run around to the front yard and hit it back over to the backyard. That's all I wanted to do was play, play baseball. And then my dad, you know, at his age, he's probably 30, 40 years old at that point. Uh, you know, he was playing, he was playing softball. So I was always at the ballpark with my dad.
0: Melbourne, uh a lot of spring
1: training done. Did
0: you have a team? Do you have a team you followed as a kid?
1: I followed the Atlanta Braves because so they were the closest team to us. The Marlins and the Braves were not in the state at that point. So uh growing up I watched I watched the Braves, became a huge Braves fan with Dale Murphy and all all the guys from the from the you know, late seventies, early eighties. And then, you know, uh coming home from school, W G N became, you know, available on our cable network. So I used to watch the Cubbies as well when I came home from school, but the Braves were my team.
0: As a as a, as a hitter, were you, what position did you play in high school? I played first base and
1: pitched a little bit in high school.
0: So you pitch, but like typical pitcher, not nothing. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. I yeah. threw fastball, curveball, change. Conventional, up. conventional, conventional, conventional. Right. Correct. Uh, you move on to Florida Tech. Uh, yep. Why Florida Tech? Just convenient. And at the time, close uh, to he home. Was the
1: only one that gave me a scholarship offer. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I didn't get any. I didn't get any of the offer. Actually, I was offered a scholarship to go to Bavard Community College, and I didn't get along with the coach, and kind of just quit after the fall season, and was just going to go get my degree, and then I was still young enough to be playing in a uh, sixteen to eighteen year old league because my birthday's in August, and the coach at Florida Tech saw me playing, and offered me a scholarship to go there.
0: And, and I still can't get over it because all I know you as is a pitcher. So when I, I hear this and, and I'm looking down, I'm going, he hit 22 homers in college. <laughs> so, I mean, you, I mean, it wasn't like you were, oh, he can hit a little bit. It's like you're hitting 22 home runs in college at that time. Like you could legit hit. You end up being an eighth round pick uh, yeah. of the Pirates as a hitter. And that's what we get into. 1988 drafted by the Pirates, eighth round. Yeah. Uh, Go off Bradenton, Florida. I assume would be your first spring training, yep. correct? And and there was a time when somebody came to you, and I, I think it was around the eighty uh, the eighty nine season. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I might have my dates correct. mixed up, but correct. How does it all come? Like, what is that initial conversation you have? Who's it with? I've had a couple buddies that did. You know, obviously Trevor did it. Hoffman, uh, right? And, and interesting enough, and and it wasn't from position player to to hit her, but my dad, he was a third baseman right. his entire career. And, you know, as I got older, he told me the story. He said, you know, him and Mike Schmidt were coming up at the same time. They were both in going to be in triple A and one had to change. And right. my dad told me I said, what were you thinking at that point? He said, I was kind of crushed. And he said, uh, you know, I had my Stanford degree and I was going to go back and and study medicine and be it become a doctor. He said, but I gave it. I told him I'd give it a shot. And I went back and I caught. And he said, "You know, it was kind of my thing." And I kind of just caught onto it, and I was good at it real quick. Yeah, uh, cool. But I was well prepared to go to medical school, and and uh, ended up being the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, I just want to know: you just get into pro ball, and right. and how's that conversation start?
1: Well, my my first year in '88, I go to Bradenton for like two weeks, and then they send me to Watertown, New York, on a short season ten league, right? And I struggled bad. Um, so I go to Instruction League, do that whole thing in uh, in the fall, and then I go to spring training the next year in um, 89. And I don't make a team out of spring training. So now I'm stuck in extended spring with all the younger high school kids and um, the Latin American guys that are around. And I'm goofing around throwing a knuckleball with another first baseman. His name was uh, John Martin, I think. I, I think that I think that's what his name was. And my manager down there, his name was Woody Heike. He's still with the Pirates, by, by the way. He's 80-something years old. He's still hitting fungos every day. And uh, he walked behind me and said, hey, that's pretty special. Do you think you can, you know, where'd you learn how to do that? I go, well, I pitched a little bit in high school. No big deal. He goes, go over to the bullpen mounds after the game today and show the pitching coach who was Bruce Keyson at the time and show him, you know, that you can throw this. So I go, all right. So I go over there after the game show them I had some mechanics with I pitched in high school, threw some knuckleballs, nothing else was said. I'm, I get I get uh, sent to Augusta, Georgia for about three weeks. I was catching bullpens. I was playing second. I was playing there. I was just trying to stay on a team somehow, pinch hitting here and there. And then they sent me back to the New York Penn League. The team had moved from Watertown to Welland, Ontario. So now I'm in Canada playing, and I'm not playing. I'm doing the same thing up there, and uh, UL Washington was my manager up there. He calls me in the office. He goes, hey, wait, listen. The organization had their meetings. They go through every single player in the minor leagues. They got to your name, and they're going to release you. But Woody Heike spoke up on your behalf, and we want you to start pitching here for the last two weeks of the season and then send you to instructional leagues. And that's that's where it started. I I came in relief, I think, from second base one time, UL Washington – made a pitching change, and he's looking at me, like, waving me in. I'm like, what's what's going on here? So he calls me in the game, and I pitched one inning and then go to Instructional League and, you know, have a pretty good Instructional League down there. And um, next thing I know, I made uh, the high A team, Salem, Virginia. In 1990 was my first year of pitching.
0: That is amazing, though, because, I mean, all of us, and you you probably see your teammates throughout the years. I mean, we all, oh, Johnny yeah. Ola, Johnny Olerud, when I was in Seattle, that was, you know, you have the one guy that's your warm-up partner before you go out, take BP. Yep. Oli was my guy, and we'd sit there, and what would we do the entire time? We'd throw okay. knuckleballs. Uh, well, of yeah, course. Exactly. And, and some guys have a good one. You know, some days I'd have it dancing, and I'd have a couple weeks where I'd get my nails right, and I could throw right. a decent one. But, right. but I don't think I'd ever, and you know, that one that, that the guy throws and you get all happy about it. Hey, did you guys see this one knuckleball I threw? But I don't think I would have been noticed by a pitching coach going, Hey, Boney, if, if, if that hitting doesn't work out, go to the, go to to the mound and throw a knuckleball. You know, we right. thought it was good for, for a position player. We thought it was good for people to actually say, Hey, you could really pitch and, and use that thing. It had to be, right. you, you had to have that extra knack for it.
1: Yeah. And I think somebody else in the organization was around maybe Charlie Huff or somebody else, you know, in another system somewhere and saw it as well and kind of said, Oh, this would be a good idea if he doesn't make it as a hitter. Cause he's struggling right now. Let's, See what happens because that's you know all of us knuckleballers. I think the only one that ever was drafted as a pitcher was Phil micro His brother was a conventional guy. Candyotti was a conventional guy. uh Let me see. Um, I was convinced I was a hitter. Um, who else was there? Um, I think I think Huff was conventional to start. Yeah, Huff was conventional. He actually came up through the minor leagues or played high school as a third baseman and yeah, Charlie Huff came up as a conventional guy and hurt his arm and went to throwing a knuckleball. Ari Dickey was a conventional pitcher, blew his elbow out started throwing knuckleballs. Stephen Wright was a conventional guy with Cleveland in the minor leagues and we got him and he turned into a knuckleball. And so, there was
0: one guy who, who's the guy who was with Detroit. I think it was the early two thousands that threw oh, a knuckleball. Um, Steve, you know I'm talking? Steve Springer. Yes. Yes. Or, no, and Sparks. Sparky. Sparks. Yeah. But, but I don't know, though. I remember Sparks throwing, like you mentioned R.A. Dickey. Yeah, R.A. Dickey was conventional. He mixed it up. Then he started going to the knuckleball. But still, he was kind of 50-50. You never knew what you were going to get from him. He might throw you three heaters that at a bat. And he might throw you four knuckleballs. He wasn't right. like just a true knuckleballer, like, all right, this is what we're getting
1: all day long. Right, right. Yeah, there's uh – uh there's there's a handful of a handful of us that you know were were conventional guys that we had to throw it full time and um you know my my biggest thing my biggest influence i mean i i talked to all of them when i first got to the big leagues with the pirates you know charlie huff and candy i were both in the national league so it was great to be able to meet those guys and talk to them and pick their brain and all that stuff but Charlie was the first guy that I actually really talked to because when I converted into the knuckle, to being a knuckleball pitcher my first year, Charlie Huff had signed with the Chicago White Sox, and he was in Sarasota with the White Sox, and we were in Bradenton. And the AAA pitching coach uh, for Buffalo the year before was now the big league pitching coach for the Chicago White Sox. So the connection was made. I run down there. He's, he's throwing a bullpen. They had a night game, so I was able to go down there. Um, he threw a bullpen. I sat and watched it, and then he pulled me into the into the locker room. And you know, back then guys were smoking a lot, so he's, he's smoking a cigarette, and he has ice on his shoulder. And I'm I'm there with a with a notepad and a tape recorder, just asking him question after question after question. And he's showing me his grip and how to do this and how to do that. It was it's still so etched in my mind that one evening being able to talk to the first real knuckleballer that I was, you know, introduced to.
0: Yeah. I mean, your, your story is, is it's pretty fascinating. The, the way I, I was reading about it and I go through it. So 1990, that was that Carolina league that we faced yep. each other. I came, I came in from the draft that year. I remember, uh, you know, cause later on in our career, obviously we, we played each other, against each other quite a bit, but I do remember 1990, 91, you go 15 and eight in double a with a two nine. Right. Um, then you go to AAA you pitch six, right. six complete games. And then 92, you're in the big leagues. First, first big league game, complete game. You end up going eight and one with a two, one, five. And this is only three years removed from that talk you just had yeah. where, Hey, if it doesn't work out and next thing, you know, you're going to be in the playoffs here in a minute.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's,
0: Scary. that's, un- that's unbelievable. <laughs>
1: 92, you go. Whirlwind. You go to the. Pl- go ahead. It was such a whirlwind. I don't remember a lot of it. As a matter of fact, my first start against St. Louis, I, like you said, I went. I threw a complete game. I want to say, Aussie. Ozzy Smith makes the last out. He hits a. He hits a knuckleball. He tops it off the plate. Don Slot comes up, picks it up, throws him out at first. And I'm running behind home plate to grab his mask because he flipped it off right there. Right. And I go, I pick the mask up. I hear the crowds cheering. I said, oh, you must have got him out. I turn around. Everybody's storming the field to give me high fives. And I, I didn't, I had no idea the game was over. That's how like, you know, my attitude was like, just getting out, just getting out, just getting out. Every hitter I faced, just getting out. Like that's how into one pitch at a time I was that, that young of an age making my major league debut.
0: You pitch. Uh, you guys face the Braves in the postseason. You pitch two complete games in the NLCS. Win yep. both of those. You got to be on top of the world because now it changes for you again. <laughs> you go from from getting released as a hitter to I'm um, pitching, having a lot of success. Playoffs 1993. Yep. You get sent down and, yep. and not called up again till September. Most Correct. of the '94 season, you're in AAA or the whole season, right. and then. Ninety-five will pick it up from there. So ninety-two, you're at the you're at the peak, and ninety-five, you get released in in April, and the Red Sox pick you up, and you're hanging out with Joe and Phil Necro.
1: Walk yeah, me that through was, that I'm, whole thing. Your head's got to be spinning about, at this point. Yeah, talk about being in the right place at the right time. Ninety-three, I was, you know, I was the opening day starter from the previous year. We didn't Barry Bonds had left. He goes to San Francisco. We don't really have the same team that we had during the postseason, And, you know, I won my first game, but I walked 10. So now the elephant in the room became what it was. And I, the year before I really didn't deal with failure. I lost one game. So that's, I think that was the, my biggest lesson in the big leagues is learning how to deal with failure. It's you fail every single day, you know, as a hitter, you're going to fail seven out of 10 times and still be one of the best hitters in the league. So I go through that 93, 94, I'm in triple A. I've, I was 5-15. and I go to spring training in 95. I make one start. That was the year of the strike. So we had a really short spring training, if you remember. And I don't make the team. I make one start. Jim Leland calls me in the office, and they release me. And I'm driving back from Bradenton to Melbourne thinking my career is over. What do I do now? Do I go back to school? Three days later, Dan Duquette, the Red Sox, called me and said, hey, we want to send you to Fort Myers. And Joe and Phil Necro are there coaching a women's barnstorming baseball team called the Coors Light Silver Bolts. I don't know if you remember them. I think they I came remember. to Seattle one time. So now I'm on the backfield in Fort Myers the Minor League complex after they just got done playing a game or he worked they worked out with the girls and I'm throwing knuckleballs with Joe and Phil, throwing to a catcher every single day for like ten days. And I can remember Phil standing behind me with a net facing hitters. He's like, all right, throw this one a little bit harder, take a little bit off. As he taught me how to pitch and got my confidence back so much that, you know, it was like a, finally it's something clicked in my head. And then, you know, he taught me about learning how to deal with failure at the big league level. He says, you're going to fail, but you gotta, you gotta understand that if you reel it back in to the first time you started, because we had that conversation you just you try to get it out with every single pitch it, once it leaves your hand you have no control over it throw the best knuckleball you can and work from there and that it's like that whole aim small miss small uh, type mentality um, I mean it, it worked for me and it clicked and as soon as I, I, I left there and went to went to um, Pawtucket and made like three or four starts I was pitching really well. Very confident, and somebody got hurt in the big leagues, and they call. I think Aaron Sealy got called up, or got hurt, and they called me up. And uh, the rest is history. I right? spent 17 years in a Red Sox uniform.
0: Yeah, your comeback player of the year in 1995, and it seems to me, uh, you guys are so the so far and few between. There's so few of you. It's almost like yeah. you're on an island You're on an island. It's like you're the place you kicker. Because yes, exactly. it's like no, nobody else knows what I'm going through. You know, as hitters, yeah, we have our tough times, but we got we got 10 guys on our team that we can go talk to and like, hey, are you seeing anything? What's you know, right. what's wrong with my swing? Am I doing this? And, and you got buddies and, and there's masses of people that can you can reach yep. out for, for help. If you're a conventional pitcher, you know, most of the pitchers are conventional. You got a lot of, uh, of guys out there that can, Hey, watch me this, you know, watch my film, tell me if you see anything, but with the knuckleball, I mean, it's just, it's kind of, you're on your own and it's like, no, nobody else knows what I'm going through.
1: (laughs) I was on an Island by myself and I had to basically have my checkpoints written down so that if, you know, pitching coach to pitching coach, to pitching coach, this is what I'm looking for, if you can find it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but look for this, look for this, look for that, look, you know, stuff like that. And to be honest with you, my catchers were a big part. I mean, obviously, Mirabelli, Veritech, they were a huge part in making changes or seeing stuff. But, you know, another big influence on my pitching was Pedro Martinez. But he wasn't afraid to critique my mechanics because he – I watched him and he watched me and he would, he would say, Hey, Wakey, you looks like you not, you're not finishing your pitches or you need to get a little bit more out front. looks like you're being lazy with your legs. Little things like that, that would click for me. And I'd go on the outfield and just throw a ball against the wall so I can get that feel. And it would come back right away. For a, for you. And, and this is why I'm
0: always thinking it's, 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 it's so different. I, we've right. got to play every as a position player. We play every day. We go out in batting practice. Some days, you know what? I feel okay. Some days I don't. But yeah. usually it's kind of in the middle somewhere. Rarely do I come out of BP going, "Wow, I feel unbelievable." I, I'd almost worry if that <laughs> happened. And rarely would I come out of batting practice saying, "I just am lost." Usually it's somewhere in the middle. You know, if you were to ask me yeah. how BP go, that eh, was fine. It was BP. I'm okay. Pitchers, yeah. they're a little different. You know, you you have your you're going out there once every fifth day. You're going to do your bullpen. Right. And before the game, did you have signs coming out of there where it was a great warm up, a decent warm up, and, and was that more of a tell than uh, than like say for me, I was mediocre. I could be mediocre in batting practice and go five for f- or four for five, and right. I could be mediocre in batting practice and go zero for. Did you have a pretty good idea how the game was going to go, or were you surprised sometimes? But but how uh-huh. you warmed up before the game.
1: I thought I did, but I learned quickly not to use that warm-up session as a barometer like you didn't use batting practice as a barometer. Right. There was times that I would left that bullpen thinking, I'm going to throw a no-hitter. I got the best crap I've ever had in the past month and not make it through the second inning. And you, and you walk off the field scratching your head like, what happened? Or, you know, I'm sick today. My bullpen sucked yesterday. I don't have anything leaving the bullpen and go eight or seven it's I, I learned early on once I got to Boston to not use that as a barometer that's so interesting
0: it's so interesting
1: and there because and there, it, there, were, there were there were times where it, like the first couple innings it's not there and all of a sudden just a thought process or I go through my checklist in my head and it clicks I'm like okay here we go like I give up three runs in the first inning or you know, three runs in the first two innings and then scoreless for the next five because I figured something out. Wow.
0: You first Kinda came like up at, For you,
1: at bat to at bat too, right?
0: At bat to at bat, right? And, and it's so, I, I was, as especially as I got older, I was so into the mental side of hitting and not so much the mechanical, but but thinking through the at bat way before I even got into the box. And right. but I also... I, I had guys around, a few guys that could say something. Like you pointed out, Pedro said to you, "You're not getting out front, or you're, 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 you're le- your your uh, your your legs they look lazy right, right now." Right. Maybe if coming from Pedro, you know what he means right away, and ding exactly. in in your brain. You go, okay, I know what he means. Okay. Oh, he's right. right. I, I'm, I'm not paying attention to that. I had certain guys when I was just kind of had that puzzled look on my face, like something's off with my swing. I don't know what it is. And one of them was Lee Elia, who was with us in the early 2000s yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. And Lee would walk by me sometimes. And he was, he was the greatest because it wasn't, let's go hit a thousand balls in the cage. It was right. like, hey, boom, he, he'd say something. I'd have that look on my face, and he goes, how how you feeling? And I'd look at him. I called him Uncle Lee. I said, Lee, how the F you think I'm feeling? You've been watching my last five at-bats? And he goes, yeah, you look a little lost. He goes, remember when we were in Texas about a week ago, and you did that thing with your top hand, and you said it felt great? And I'd look at him, and he goes, why don't you try doing that? And he'd walk away. And my yeah. all the bells and whistles would go off like, why didn't I think of that? All of a sudden. <laughs> you know. And it doesn't mean I'm going to get a funny. hit my next at bat. But I'll tell you what, no. mentally, now I've got a chance. Now you're locked in. Exactly. Right. And that's, that's what is not talked about so much in this game that is by far, I think, the most important part is how you prepare in your mindset going into each and every game. For me, going into each and every at bat.
1: Agreed. I agree. And your checklist can't be like 20 items long. It's got to cut down. It's got to be cut down to five. That's right. max, you know, little, little in, in, end of uh, intricate stuff that you only, you know, and somebody else might know you're pitching to your, your, I mean, your hitting coach or a teammate. Like, okay. Uh, you're like uncle, uncle Lee, right? Just like, okay, get your hands back in that same spot. That's the same. That was the same with me. Right. And
0: things that you'd say to the masses, they would look at you like you had two heads. Like, all right, I know you can't understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or you can't even see it with the naked eye on a tape. Um, 14 and 13, 12 and 15, 1998, you go 17 and eight. Uh, you got a little bit of, you came up with in '95 when you first went to Boston. Clemens was your number one. Now you got Pedro Saves, one of my favorites, Brett Saberhagen, yeah, Steve Steve Avery, and you rounded yeah. out that rotation. There went to the playoffs, lost to the Indians. 1999, things changed for you again. You're you're starting every fifth day. All of a sudden, you're asked to do some bullpen work. You're asked to be the closer. How did that go?
1: Yeah. Uh so. I remember getting to the park that day it was my side sideline day and Tom Gordon came up lame and we couldn't get, I, I think he hurt his elbow. He's going to be off for the rest of the year. And we didn't, nobody had got called up yet from triple A. So we were waiting on somebody and I asked, you know, cause this is one thing the Negroes told me, always have your spikes on, be ready to pitch You're you're not only a starter, but you can pitch in between starts. You could pitch on the days that you start your side, always be ready. Just be that guy. So I went to Jimmy Williams at the time and I said, Jimmy, we need any help in the bullpen. I, I heard flashes hurt. He's like, yeah, do you mind running down there? I'm like, no, not at all. So I, you know, I had my spikes on, so I go down there and I'm sitting in the bullpen for the whole game and it's, you know, but I think we're playing the Texas Rangers at home in Boston and you know, it's getting, I think it was the, the eighth inning. could have, been, I think it was the eighth and the phone rings and I'm not thinking it's me. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy called down and said, get wake up. So I'm like, what now my heart's racing a thousand miles an hour. So I, I get loose real quick. And I think there was uh, two, two outs runners on first and second and I get called in the game and I'm facing, I think it was Yvonne Rodriguez and I had never felt this adrenaline before. I'm like, oh my god, what is going on? Like, I like everything was tingling. I couldn't feel my feet. I couldn't feel my legs. I had a hard time gripping the ball. And I think I threw one pitch that was a ball. And a guy ran on the field. He jumped. He jumped the fence over by the batter's box and comes running out and he's trying to give me a high five. And the security grabs him. And I was able to slow my my thought process down. I'm like, all right, take a deep breath, just. Exhale. It's all right. Everything's going to be good. And I ended up getting out of that inning, and then pitched the ninth, uh, a four-out save, a four-out save from the eighth and the ninth. And I, I think it was the eighth and ninth. Maybe it was just the ninth. But I was able to come away with my first save. And uh, Jimmy made me uh, uh, partial closer with Derek Lowe that year. And we, I think, we both ended up with 17 saves.
0: And then through the early two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two, you're going back and forth quite a bit, aren't you? Yeah. From starter to re- later. Yeah, was. was that was yeah, that tough was. for you?
1: It was hard because I, you know, I was a starter for so many years and was averaging two hundred innings a year and winning ten to fifteen games. You know, I was, you know, consistently one of your, you know, I'm not, I'm not an ace, but you know, I, I'm the back end of a, of a rotation, the four or five guy that's going to eat up innings for you. That's you're not going to have. If it's a blowout game, just leave me out there. My year eight doesn't matter. I'm, I'm here to eat up innings for the club and save the bullpen. So, yeah, it kind of it hurt me because I wasn't I wasn't an important part of the bullpen. I was just a mop-up guy now. I was, this, I was the sixth starter in a rotation uh, that I knew I could outpitch two out of the five guys that were in the rotation, and it bothered me a lot. And it wasn't until Grady Little came in and took over in 2002 um, that I was starting to maybe get a little more important roles in the bullpen. Like he would use me in a certain situation to bridge a gap between the the eight and nine inning guy. I would pitch the seventh or sometimes the sixth to to hold the lead or to keep a lead close um, to give it to the next guy. And then somebody got hurt, and he put me back in the rotation, I think, in 20. 2003, 2003, and I was a full-time starter that year. I think I made tw- 29 or 28 starts that year, I think. I'd have to look at the statistics. but And, and, two, what, people,
0: and what people don't really consider when it's this, and, and as players we don't like to talk about it, but I, I remember where I hit in the lineup. No, I want to hit third, I want to hit fourth, eh, fifth is fine. But I don't want to hit second because back then I was being paid for runs batted in. And so yep. call it selfish, what, whatever it is, we have a small time to make money. Well, so I understand for you, exactly. you're sitting there going, well, my value is in how many innings? My value is being a starting pitcher. My value is, and this is back when they looked at wins and losses, winning 15 games matters. That matters yep. in my contract. And it's not being selfish, you know, putting it out there. Of course, you don't want to always talk about yourself, but. Uh, right, right, rightfully. So we have to, you have to take care of you as well. So I can understand where that frustration came from.
1: Yeah. I remember one year, I think Pedro got hurt and I jumped at this. It might've been 2001. I jumped back into the rotation and I had enough innings to qualify for the lead league in ERA and Pedro comes off the DL and I won't mention my pitching coach's name. But he comes to me, and goes, like, you have to go back to the bullpen. I, I was like, excuse me? I'm leading the league in ERA. I have enough innings, you know, and it was not far from the, the leading guy of innings that year. And I had a huge argument with him. And, unfortunately, I had to go back to the bullpen because there was nothing I could do about it, which really pro- burned me.
0: And probably they thought, well, Wakefield can do it. Whereas if we were to move him into that part of the rotation, that guy couldn't handle the job you were doing.
1: Correct. That was, that was my, I I, I guess my, not my nemesis, but that was my bugaboo that I was so versatile as a pitcher, especially the knuckleball. I can, I can throw, I I can do everything. I could start, I could close, I could pitch long relief. I could do it. I could do all. I was the handyman. I was that, utility guy that sat on the bench and pinch hit that, that was, you know, that was a hard one to swallow because I knew I was better than a lot of guys that were out there. But because of the knuckleball, not because of my statistics, it was because of the knuckleball. I was very versatile and I was going to be used as that utility pitcher.
0: From a, uh, from a physical standpoint, you, you pitch conventional as a, as a kid in high school. Yeah. Uh, now being a knuckleball pitcher, what's the physical difference between going out there throwing conventional versus throwing the knuckleball? Can you go every um, third third day if you had had to? Is it much easier to throw 120 pitches throwing a knuckleball than it is conventionally?
1: No, I mean uh, it's probably easier than a conventional pitcher that throws 95. Obviously, yes. Yeah, I'm not putting that much wear and tear on my shoulder or my elbow, so. I remember early on. You'll never see this now. Like I think I threw 168 pitches in a game because the bullpen needed a day off, and he just it was Kevin Kennedy was the manager, and I didn't mind doing it. He's like, "Hey, Aaron Sealy's sick today. You need to you need to start in his spot." And by the way, I need to save the bullpen, so I go out there and go eight and throw 163 pitches to save the rest of the team. And that was, you know, that was my job. Was I sore the next day? Yeah, a little bit, but you know what? I was going to get the ball in the next four days and I had plenty enough time to, to recruit myself.
0: All right. We get to 2003. I'm sure you've never heard this one before. Uh, (laughs) we got it. We got to talk about, well, we call him over here. We call him uncle Aaron to the, to my kids. But, uh, 2003, you have a, a four Oh nine ERA that year. Uh Um, in that series with with the Yankees, and and uh, I want to talk about that rivalry. I'll save it for a little bit later. But yeah, what a series it was. And and I was there, and I was in the booth reluctantly. I, I didn't want to go. You know, we had just uh, I'd finished my season in Seattle. We'd won ninety three games, I think, didn't make the playoffs. And Fox is asking me. You know, they were trying that third man in the booth. I didn't want to do it. I didn't prepare. I but I thought, right. well, I'll get to, I'll get to see a great series. So I remember that series, you won one, you won game one and four. Correct. And my brother was having the worst series that you could possibly <laughs> have. And I re- I remember talking to him the night before wake. So you can blame me for this, but I walked into his, I walked into it. I've told this story before I walked into his apartment in New York and it was like, he was my little brother, Aaron, when he was like eight years old. I mean, he's sitting in his bed almost in a fetal position And I have never seen him this down. Now, I'm, you know, I'm out in the town. I was going to, I don't know, I was at a bar or something. And I'm coming in trying to cheer him up. And I said, buddy, what's what's going on? He's like, have you seen me play? I said, you stink. I said, but I'll tell you what. I know what that feels like. Oh, you don't know what I feel. I said, flip over my bubblegum card from the mid-90s a couple (laughs) years. Don't tell me I don't know what you're feeling like. And I said, but tomorrow, bud, you, you turn a big double play, you hit a sacrifice fly, and you guys win and go on to the World Series. No one's going to care that Aaron Boone hit 100. And I left him with that. So I get to the ballpark the next day, and he's not in the lineup. So now as a big brother, I kind of feel bad. Like, wow, Tory's right. benching him now. And I do remember when he came out, and you have to unexpectedly come in in relief. Like I said, you won one Game one and game four. Yeah. And I, yeah. Re- I really said this to myself, what we talked about at the opening. I said, that man right there on deck coming out to pinch hit has got no chance against a conventional pitcher right now. I said, maybe this wiffle ball game that's about to happen, he's got a chance. Now, I never thought what happened next was going to happen. But right and I remember seeing the whole thing was so emotional for me and and it wasn't outwardly emotional. It's like, I felt so good for my brother, but I yep. looked at, I, I, I thought about you guys in that other dugout and cause I, my heart's been ripped out like that before in the postseason too. I thought wow. about it. I remember seeing pictures of you right there and going, yep. wow, I, the emotions of this game and why this game is so unbelievable is Aaron was you probably in the moment the night before sitting in his bed and now it's a role reverse, and, and history was kind of changed after that for him. I mean, you know, he ends up getting that, that accident in the off season, never comes back. Alex goes to New York. uh, And it, and now, you know, fast forward 15 years, he's, he's the manager of the Yankees. And I think his relationship with Cashman uh, stemmed from, from his time in New York, but, what a, what an emotional thing! What a weird thing to happen! Uh, it, it, as much as you've been asked about this, just walk me through that.
1: Well, it it was a crazy game because you know we're we're winning. You know, Pedro uh, had gone seven, I think, and when he walked off the field, he had this. You know, he had this telltale sign for all of us that was. You know, pounded his chest with his fist and then pointed up to the sky as he walked off. And that, to all of us, knew he was done. So we all think the phone's going to ring. We have Timlin and we have Embry ready to go. And I forgot who the closer. I think was Folk the closer that year. No, I don't think he was. I Can't think Folk might.
0: I think Folk might have been that year. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I don't know. I, I don't. No, may, no been, right. Folk. I think Folk might have been the closer the next year when you guys. The were next in year, no four. Correct. Right.
1: So anyway, long story short, they send Pedro back out. We're, you know, I had run down to the bullpen because we were running out of guys quickly. And um, the bu- and I got down there, and the phone never rang. I'm like, uh-oh, what's going on? I so, said, yeah, well, you know, Tim one's up, he's getting loose, you know, um, Embry's getting loose, and the phone never rings. so we see Pedro go back out. And that's when all hell breaks loose. And they go through every reliever, and there's one guy left. And it's me, and I come in, and I'm ready, I'm prepared, and uh, I get through the, I, I get through the tenth, one, two, three, no big deal. Um, your brother comes up to lead off the eleventh, and I'm just, i told myself, just throw strike one, get ahead, and then you can work work around whatever situation may arise, and the ball went out of the ballpark. I think I just I left it up a little bit too high trying to just – I didn't think he was going to swing, to be honest with you. Trying to get ahead 0-1, and he got me. Game's and over.
0: It, and it's – yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, like I said, I, just as a, as a fan of that game, sitting in the broadcast booth watching, yeah, it was my brother, so I was very inside so happy right, for right. him because I know you know the way he was feeling. Uh, right. But, the, but it's, it's just a, it's a surreal moment. It's like that, you know, that, what are the chances of that happening in that situation? Like I said, yeah, I, I said to, my, I I said said to myself, ballpark, that that I would happen. never want to, I would never want to face Timmy because I hated facing you. I felt like, oh, he's going to screw me up. I'm going to have to go to my, you know, I have, we talk about checkpoints when I faced you or, or Charlie, I I couldn't go with my normal stance. I I had to go with, and like you said, you know how nobody else knows the differences I'm going to do. Well, you probably couldn't see him on camera, but I would do different things in my mind facing uh, you or or a Huff or a Candiotti, And I just thought that to myself, I said, well, who knows? Maybe maybe this is what he needs right now. And, and just the stars aligned and and it happened. Uh, Grady Little, I, I really liked Grady. I don't know him very well, well but yeah. he was there for two years. I thought he was really unfairly treated after that. See, I mean, that was a pretty exciting series. You had Pedro throwing up and in. Uh, you had the Zim getting thrown down. I was up there defending Pedro. I'm going, listen, when you're in a brawl. You're not looking, oh, that's Mr. Zimmer. I should be cautious with him. All you know is it's Pedro. (laughs) The world's coming after me, and I got to defend myself, and I can't pick and choose, oh, I should be nice to you because you're over 60. So I'm right. up in the booth trying to defend everybody at the same time, going, I got to play against all these guys next year, and they're all going to be listening to what I'm saying down on the TV. <laughs> so that, that was that was a that was a shock for me. I mean, I didn't want to do it. That was exciting.
1: That was a year. Yeah, that was a year. Tech and uh, A Rod got in a fight.
0: All that good stuff. So yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing. It was it was a wow. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to 2004. Uh, and one of, the, one of the most, in my mind's, top two, top three sports moments that I just look back on. I look at a few. I look at that Brady Super Bowl back about 10 years ago where he came back in the second half against oh, the yeah. Falcons. That's one of mine. Uh, I'm, th- I'm thinking Madison Bumgardner's performance in one of those World Series for the Giants. I forget the year. That's two. And what you guys did in 2004 – down 3-0 to the Yankees who had just beat you a yeah. year before to come back and to win four right. straight is borderline. Right. That's kind of impossible. Your season's over. Uh, let's just take it from there. You got a new skipper, uh, Frank yep. Kona, take it from yep. there and what you guys are thinking uh, when you're down 3-0 to the Yankees and in, in that uh, ALCS.
1: Uh, I'll be honest with you. I know I, I pitched that game game three because it was a blowout and, um, you know, it's one of. Uh, I think the, me and Mirabella Mar- and a bunch of guys were sitting on the end of the benches, like we need to, you know, we need to preserve, you know, uh, Timlin, Embry, and Folk for if this goes any further because they they didn't want to use them in a blowout game. So I I I, I went down there and through and uh, Nakona's, you know, told me he said to go ask Derek if he could start tomorrow because Derek was on the roster, but he wasn't he wasn't you know he was going to be an extra guy so. You know that's why he ended up starting Game Four. Long story short, we get home that night, and I'm, you know, I'm sure everybody else was like, "All right, what time? You know, it's gonna it's it's gonna be over in a couple days, or it could be over tomorrow. Who knows? Um, let's let's uh, plan our trip. I'm talking to my wife. Let's plan our trip home and uh, get to a ballpark the next day. And Malar is chirping, right? You know, you can hear him when you first walking in the clubhouse, you know. And I guess Dan Shaughnessy, one of our beat writers, had wrote, written something in the paper saying that we were frauds. He called us frauds in the paper. And I never read the paper, but Millar got a hold of it and started started saying, "Hey, this guys they think we're frauds. Don't let us win tonight because if we win tonight, then we got Pedro, then we got Schilling and anything can happen in game 7." And the attitude amongst everybody on that club that day immediately changed because of one guy, Kevin Millar. It was amazing. Because and then we go through only, the game, and, you know, Dave Roberts' steals. Uh, Millar gets the walk, Dave Roberts' steals second, Billy Miller hits a base hit to tie the game, and here we go. David it, became it, David, you know? Yeah, I, I
0: can't, I mean, to this day, it's like, not only, it's not just because it's that, that rivalry, that Red Sox-Yankees, but it's, that's a great right. Yankee team. And it doesn't matter who you're playing against. If you're in the postseason and you're down 3-0, Best out of seven, it's over. It's just yeah. it's. I, I I don't think at that it's point it's ever time. it's
1: it's ever been done before or since. It had never it had never been done before. Correct. I think it's been done in hockey. I think somebody was down three games and nothing in hockey and came back and won the Stanley Cup. I think I'd have to research that, but.
0: You go on to the World Series, you sweep the Cardinals. You guys didn't lose a game
1: after that. You go down 3-0 and you win eight straight. Um, I don't think the Cardinals had a chance. We had so much momentum going into St. Louis in that series, in the World Series, that uh, it was it was kind of a moot point, you know? And they were, that world. was a
0: good team, too.
1: Yeah, it was a real good team.
0: First World yeah. Series for, for the Red Sox, Curse of the Bambino, the whole thing. That was a yeah. great team you guys had. Uh, the parade, the city, it had to be unbelievable.
1: It was unbelievable. It was so surreal, Booney, flying home after winning game four in St. Louis and celebrating there. The, The fan, obviously, you know, you know, the Midwest fans, they're so unbelievably nice and polite. They were congratulating us. We were celebrating on the field. We partied at the clubhouse. We went back to the hotel and decided, let's just get dressed and fly back home. And, it was when we landed, it was, it was like dawn. I mean, the sun was just peeking over the horizon and we were on the buses headed back to the, to the ballpark. And the city was at a standstill, like every intersection we went through there and it was rush hour traffic. There was people standing on their cars. You know, the sirens were going off of our police escort and, I can remember people being in like these high rises that were being built standing on the edge of, of the, uh, the iron workers were out there cheering with flags and everything. I just, it's so etched in my brain that it was unbelievable. And we pulled into the ballpark and there were so many people at the ballpark. It was almost like we had a home game that day. Everybody was out on the streets celebrating and cheering and all that stuff. So, and, and then the parade was insane absolutely four hours of nonstop noise. I, I, I related to, I felt like I was at a rock concert with my, with my left ear up against the speaker for the, for four hours. Cause when I got off the boat and went back into the clubhouse after the parade, I couldn't hear out of, out of, out of my left ear. <laughs> That's how loud it was.
0: And that team, it was Manny and Ortiz and Pedro and Johnny, Johnny Damon. Yeah. Millar you mentioned, Veritek, who's a staple in Boston forever, Shill Very much so, yeah. The 0-7, fast forward to O seven, you win the World yeah. Series again, you beat the Angels. Uh I'm sorry, you sweep the you sweep the Rockies in the World the Series. It's yeah. a different but it's a different cast of characters. You got now it's like it it's is. Beckett. It's Papelbon, uh, Mike right. Lowell. Madroya is a young player at that time. Um, yeah,
1: Pedroia was a compa- rookie. Ellsbury was a rookie that year. Right. Compare those two teams. Similar? Very similar, I- but a lot younger on the back end. The, the younger players were, were rookies. Uh, I don't think we had any rookies on the 0-4 team. We had some veteran guys that we had signed and were there. Um, but the pitching staff was, different as well. Um, Lester was one of those guys too. Um, We had Lester Beckett. Beckett had won a world series already with the Marlins. So he wasn't a rookie, but then we had Pedroia. We had Ellsbury, um, Mike Lowell, who was in Miami for the past four years. We had a great group of guys that was kind of the same team. A bunch of, we called ourselves Brown baggers back in Oh four. I think we still had that same mentality guys were hard workers and, um, came, came to play baseball. That was it. We weren't into, you know, the high life, I guess, so to speak. We were, we were, we were dirt dogs. They called us in Boston for a long time, you know? And I think that's, that, that um, exemplifies what the city is like too, you know, blue collar, hardworking people. And that's what we embodied as, as a Red Sox team, both in 04 and 07.
0: Pretty awesome too. Never happened. You break that curse in 04 and then 07, you win another one. So you win, two and four years uh, that had never been done before. Any difference in the second one versus the first, any sweeter? same?
1: Uh, the same. Yeah. Not, not sweeter. Cause the first one, obviously, I mean, to end an 86 year curse was something special. Oh seven was special as well, but I, I don't think it can top Oh four, to be honest with you. Uh,
0: that, that's and that's really not even a fair question for me. I mean, how can you top '04? Never happened before. It's never a World Series championship's never been brought home to Boston. You bring it home. That's always going to be uh, the highlight. I mean, it, it, yeah. it can't get any better than that. '09. Uh, fast forward to '09. You're an all-star, yeah, for the first time. Yep. Kind of. Forty-two. What, what was it? Pretty. Was it? I, I don't even know how to word it, but. F- was it kind of like, finally, you're recognizing me. I mean, it had yeah, to be yeah. somewhat I I of had a, you know, of
1: chances to make the all-star team in years previous to Oh nine. And I never got a, I never got a shot. And then Oh nine, I was having a really, really good year. And, you know, of course, Tito played the joke on me after they announced who was on the all-star team. And the guys were walking around with their, you know, you know, Tito would call them on the office. And then he, he called me into the office. The door was closed and I walk into the office, and all the guys that were on the All Star team were in there, and then they they dog piled me, like yay, yeah. you know. And finally, they, they did, Tito did a good job messing with me, um, and so I, I got my invitation to the All Star game. It was it was a pretty special day for me to be able to to finally go to an All Star game and be recognized for being one of the best in the league.
0: Yeah, because it is. I mean, we all, you know, we go out every year and, and that's our, you know, we don't play to make an all-star team, but of course we want no. to be recognized. And it's such a, you know, it's such a tough thing and, and you get snubbed. And one year you get snubbed and the next year somebody else, it's not really a fair process, but Correct, to finally get it. I, I I remember, you know, I got to go to three and I'll tell you, every time I made that all-star team, I was so proud and so excited. Like I got recognized, you know, it does, it matters. And I, and I'd see the guys that, that had eight or nine all-stars and kind of treat it, treat it like it was no big deal. And I'm like, I don't care how many times you come here. This is a big deal. This is special. Cause I was a kid in a candy shop every time. I remember my first one, I just sat there and you know me, I'm not, I'm not really a guy that sits there. I'm pretty loud. And I remember that first all-star game. It's like, damn it. Finally, I made it, you know, inside I'm going, yeah, I should have made it last year, but I made it this year. (laughs) But I remember just taking it all in and listening to the conversations. Like I remember his bonds was bonds was near me in my first all-star
1: game. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm in in the same team with bonds. I know. I know. I got, I got a chance to play with him his last year in Pittsburgh and, uh, it was, it was funny that, uh, when we started playing interleague games and we got to San Francisco where he was, I didn't, and I only played with him for like two months. Um, and it had been maybe 10 years. Um, but he remembered who I was. That was a pretty cool thing to me that Barry Bonds, when he walked or got a base hit, he looked over in the dugout and said, what's up, wake, how you been, man? That was pretty cool for me.
0: Yeah. He's great. Well. About- in my mind is it's greatest and it's not even close to ever to ever step into a box. Um, right. go to two thousand eleven, at the age of forty four, you finally retire. Um, yeah. was the writing on the wall, did you know it was time?
1: Yeah, um, I wanted I wanted one more year selfishly. Um, I was six wins away from breaking, you know, Saw Young and Roger Clemens all time Red Sox record for wins at one eighty six. I ended up you know, getting Close, six wins away from that, and unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to do it. But it's it's cool with me now. Um, you know, it was uh it probably was the best decision I could have made. They offered me a they offered me a, a minor league contract to go to spring training, try to make the team. You know, a lot of a lot of young guys were out of options, so they couldn't guarantee me a big league contract. Um, even though I told them I'd play for the minimum at that that time, it, it wasn't about the money. It was just about an opportunity to try. Try to break a record, but, um, you know, it was probably the best decision I made. You know, it was it was a tough one, um, and it wasn't until, you know, I it was weighing on my shoulders for months and months and months, and uh, it wasn't until I sat my kids down who were, at the time, maybe six and seven, and I laid all the cards on the table. I said, listen, if Daddy does this, this is what's going to happen. If Daddy doesn't do this, this is what's going to happen. And they both looked at me. Or they both looked at each other like, you want to tell them or do you want me to? And they both said, Daddy, we want you to stay home. And in that moment, like 10,000 pounds was lifted off my shoulders. And I called the Red Sox and said, thanks for the invite, but I'm going to retire.
0: That same year, the year after uh, 2011 that you retired, you got your 200th win. Uh, yeah. two hundred and one eighty overall. Uh, how special was that And try to try to go back to 1989 when you're asked to change you ever think oh yeah one day I'll win 200 oh God, games no, in the well, no i win 200 way. games in the big leagues
1: 200 games in the big leagues 186 with one club six away i i misspoke because I, I they both had 192 I ended up with 186 but I' never ever you know seventeen years before that think that I would be where I was you know it took me eight tries but I finally got it on, on the eighth try, my last try, to be honest with you, um, and to be able to celebrate that with the fans at Fenway, with my teammates was was a pretty special night for sure. Over twenty
0: one hundred punch outs, um, got a few more, and I'll let you go. But I, I want to talk about that because you were right in the heat uh, in the in the middle of it. During what I consider the the biggest rival times for that Yankee Boston yeah rival. oh by far yeah uh, tell the fans how how special it is to, it, it's just because I, I I've never been on a team that we ever had a rival that that was something that special you know like New York's yeah. playing New York's playing Boston wow when you guys were both great teams uh, it it seems like you're on Sunday Night Baseball every week the rest of us couldn't even get on but uh, it was yeah. that special of a rivalry.
1: And, and it was a different atmosphere when we played them, whether it was in Boston or whether it was in New York, there was an electricity in the atmosphere that just made it that much more special. And I think the rivalry comes, you know, obviously there was a rivalry back in the seventies with the Red Sox and the Yankees, but I think it takes playing against the same team with this, with a group of guys that are staying together. Like, then it was Jeter, Posada, uh, Bernie Williams, you know, Paul O'Neill, uh, Tino Martinez, guys. You know, even before I think Mattingly was on that team back then too. But early uh, hit, towards the end of his career, but he was starting in the mix of our rivalry, my era of rivalry with those guys, and it was just like you had that same core group of like eight or nine or ten guys that played against each other for ten straight years. It gets heated. And you respect each other so much. But I think what the, you know, you're playing each other, what, 19 times a year? You face each other a lot. You learn the intricacies of each other. And you know, it's just the, the pressure builds as the year goes on until the end. And it's always, you know, AL East versus AL East, and it's always New York to Boston great games when it counted especially in September you played you played your division that at the end in September and it was it came down to some heated heated battles for sure
0: and it's you know it's a it's a big deal when your peers are watching you all the time and we were yeah. you know the, the the other players that on the other teams I mean that was a big deal oh you know not too often when we play and, and for those of you out there listening to Boone podcast it's 162 games. It's not like when we finish a game, uh, we're looking to go watch somebody else's game, unless it matters for the going to the playoffs or something like that. But I'll tell right. you on a Sunday night, we as players guilty, we'd watch your game because it was that big of a deal at that particular time in, in history.
1: Yeah. I mean, anything could have happened in those games. I mean, the, the, I'm sure you guys felt the electricity as well, watching it on a television, right? It's like, yeah, and this it was is awesome. a heated battle. These are two franchises that hate each other and have hated each other for years. It's almost like, um, the Cardinal Cubs rivalries, right? But in
0: in my, in our generation, I don't think any, anything can match, uh, Yankee boss. No, I agree. That, that That's just I, I for agree. me, for me. Yeah. Um, As I get a little bit older, Wake, uh, I've always, you know, I'm a fan of the game. I I love talking the intricacies. I love talking strategy, importance. As I get older, I've really started to realize how important that pitcher-catcher relationship is and how big of a, how big effect it has on a staff. You know, I played on some great teams in Seattle and and Dan Wilson, you know, he'd hit seventh or hit eighth. And I really, until recently, didn't realize how important he was to those ball clubs and the pitchers, uh, their mental frame of mind. You got a guy behind there that you trust and, and you work with, even when you don't have your best stuff, you can get through it because that catcher is going to get you through it. And if quite the contrary, if you don't have that catcher, man, it makes your job, it seems like twice as hard. Now, I never thought you're about getting, it that way, but the more I watched the game. It really affects it. How about your relationship, especially with your particular pitch? And you talked about it. Mirabelli for a long time was your personal catcher. Um, But your relationship with, with uh, the pitcher catcher relationship in general and how important it is.
1: Yeah, it's very important. It's very important to your, uh, your confidence on, on the mound of like, you know, as athletes, you don't want to think too much. And if you're having to call your own game, it's, it's exhausting. Not only, mentally but physically after a while it's like whew, I'm like every I can't do all this at one time so having having a good receiver back there and you kind of think the same way and you and you understand the intricacies of the hitters that you're facing and you can make adjustments and with just a look it's like all right I saw him foul that one off late so I'm gonna add a little bit more so he's not pulling me to keep it fair you know it's like you, you learn how to follow foul balls and you know, for me, I had to find somebody that was confident in catching the knuckleball, first of all. And it was, you know, until Mirabelli showed up, Mirabelli, we traded for him and he became my personal catcher because Veritech needed a day off, you know, every five days somewhere. And it ended up being that they did one, they, they picked my start when I was starting every five days to, to put Mirabelli in. Now, Mirabelli's first attempt to catch me you know he comes in you know he's a very competent guy i think we he we got him from texas and he rolls into to atlanta we're playing the braves and i have a side to throw that day and he's back there catching he's snatching everything like no big deal we go to toronto where i make my first start with him and uh he's warming me up and it's in a dome which it makes it moves a lot more and i can see his eyes getting as big as saucers in the bullpen and we'd go out in the first inning, and we got through the first inning one, two, three. But he told me later, he goes down to Hatterberg, who was our other catcher, along with Veritek. He goes, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> it was moving that much in the Dome in Toronto. And to his credit, he, along with our catching coordinator and bullpen coach, uh, Gary Tuck, at the time, they worked constantly on learning how to receive the ball the best way he could possibly receive it without, you know, botching it. And they 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 did a great job. He became very good at what he did, for sure. And it was a, a confidence builder for me back there.
0: Give me a percentage. You come out of the pen. You've got your best stuff. Yeah. You're throwing strikes. You're putting it wherever you want. It's dancing. How many off-knuckleball pitches will you throw in a nine-inning game? If it's just one of those days, everything's if a, right. If it's a
1: hundred pitch game, I might throw ten non non knuckleballs. Okay. Uh, if, if, you're had, throw, if, if, you're, if you're throwing control. twenty
0: or thirty, you're in trouble.
1: Yeah, if I'm throwing twenty or thirty non knuckleballs, then I'm in a lot of trouble. That's for sure. Last
0: knuckleball question: nails. Yeah. How important? How important? very,
1: very important. Yeah,
0: I mean, right. I look at these guys you know, now, you know, they get the oven mitts when they're going to steal a base. Did you have to wear yeah. something? Like, I mean, just walking around town.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, I never had to do anything. I know. I think candy had some fake nails on his once before. I think Steven, uh, uh, I think R a did it too. Um, but I, I kept mine pretty short so they wouldn't break. Um, occasionally one would break a little bit and I, I learned how to, instead of, you know, putting nail polish on it and fixing it, I actually used super glue and got it back to where it was pliable enough that it wasn't going to bother me. And, you know, and I had a file up, you know, with me constantly to to try to get my nails to a right. Because it's got that, you got to have that feel. Like you you don't feel like the ball is going to slip out of your hand when you're throwing it because you're kind of having to push it. The ball wants to rotate and go backwards out of your hand. So you need to control the top part of the ball. So the nails were very important. Not that I like used them. I didn't throw with my nails. I threw with my fingertips, with the nails, you know, adding extra grip into the leather of the baseball.
0: 2016, get phone call. Uh, your Red Sox Hall of
1: Famer. How was that call? Pretty special. Pretty special um, to go in with, <clears throat> you know, Veritech, We both retired the same year. We were both teammates for. long time. He was there in 97. So I, we were teammates for 15 years together. Um, pretty special to, to be able to go in the Red Sox hall of fame with, you know, another true, you know, hall of famer himself is is Jason Veritek, And he was a big influence on my life uh, when we were together at a young age and then obviously, uh, still have that relationship today.
0: Veritek, He was. He was a pain in the. He was a pain in the ass. He would be thinking with me all the time, and I didn't like that. Oh, yeah. And he'd get, yeah. he'd give me a look. You know, I I, I kind of there were certain guys I didn't like because you started thinking with me. I already, I already had this thought process. You know, like bases loaded. Once in a while, bases loaded. I would go up there and yeah. I'm sitting. I'm sitting on a breaking ball because they don't want to give me a first pitch fastball, uh, and they throw, studied- throw me a fastball. They throw me a. Yeah. They throw me a fastball for a strike. And and I'd almost feel Veritek like take his mask off and look at me like, Hey Boone, you must not have been looking for that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I'm like, Oh, now the chess match is on. Now we got to yeah, think, all right, what's exactly. he thinking? And what do I have to counter him with? It was fun, he but was it's really I didn't like it. Guys he was really tendencies good back
1: then before, before analytics was there, he was really good at studying guys' tendencies. So, um, you know, that's why he's still around, you know, helping out coaching as well.
0: Twenty four hundred sports is an odyssey company.